Hello and welcome to Genetics Unzipped, the Genetic Society podcast with me, Dr. Katani. In this episode, we're diving into the Valley of Hybridisation, visiting the Society's medal-winning, Mendel-based garden at the RHS Chelsea Flower Show. Plus, the importance of playing with your genes. At the end of May, the Royal Hospital in Chelsea, West London, was transformed into a wonderland of gardening delights for the Royal Horticultural Society's annual Chelsea Flower Show. This year, the Genetic Society was lucky enough to be accepted to present a very special garden, celebrating the Society's centenary year. It featured a luscious valley of snapdragons or antirhinums, a giant DNA sculpture, live genome sequencing with a minion device, and even a modern-day Mendel hard at work with his peas and his pipettes. We sent our reporter, Greer Jackson, for a trip up the genetical garden path to seek out the mastermind behind the project, Genetic Society past president, Professor Wendy Bickmore, and to find the science among the snapdragons. We are at the RHS Chelsea Flower Show, and we're here because I had this crazy idea that an interesting way to celebrate the centenary of the Genetic Society, which is this year, 2019, would be to come to a flower show and talk about flower genetics to the public. Why? What's the connection to the Genetic Society? So the founder of the Genetic Society, William Bateson, was a plant geneticist. He used plants to try and understand the basis of flower colour. And Antirhinum is one of the flowers that he worked on. And Bateson was an interesting character because he was the person that kind of really repopularised Mendel's work on peas. It was actually while he was at an RHS conference, I think, that he was introduced to Mendel's writings and he popularised it in English language. He was the first person to coin the word genetics, in fact. So there seemed to be also a relationship to the RHS, of course, who run the Chelsea Flower Show. And I know this is something that Kat's touched on a lot on the podcast before, but just briefly, who was Mendel and what did he do with peas? So Mendel was a friar, in fact, the abbot of a monastery in Bruno, in the Czech Republic, and he was interested in variety in both animals and plants and of course he's famous for studying peas which we've got on our stand here of course we've got some of Mendel's peas he was both studying the shape and colour of the seeds whether they were smooth or wrinkly but also flower colour so a lot of people don't realise he was interested in pea colour and so we have a beautiful sculpture of a double helix here made for us by the John Innes Institute and we've got the different flower colours of the pea there It's quite interesting that Bateson chose to present this work to the Royal Horticultural Society. Does that say something about the interplay between genetics and plants at the time? Does it say something about the era? I I think it did. I mean, botany and plant sciences were very prominent then in the whole scientific community, probably much more so than now. And the RHS was really a very important organisation for promoting science and natural sciences in general. I should say that what's in front of us is pretty spectacular. It's recreating the landscape of the Pyrenees. So you've got the Pyrenees in the backdrop, a photo of them. And then you've got this selection of flowers that are supposed to be going from one hill to another with a valley in the middle. And what happens is on one side you have magenta pink flowers and on the other side you have very pale yellow. And where they meet in the middle in the valley, you've got a right odd collection of 
colours and even on the same plant. So there might be some white ones, then there's some peachy ones, and then even some of them are pink with yellow ones. So it's a real odds and sods collection of colours and flowers. Tell me a bit about this. What's the thought process behind? So when we decided that we would come to the Chelsea Flower Show, then the next thing was we had to decide what to do. And none of us are professional plant growers. So we thought a little bit. Our first ideas were that maybe we'd build a greenhouse and call it Mendel's Glass House, and we'd do displays of peas and maybe some Punnett squares and a few other things. And then that all seemed to be a bit too complicated. And I was listening to a public lecture, the Haldane Lecture, given by Rico Cohen, another of the past presidents of the Genetic Society, who works on antirhinums in Norwich at the John Innes. And he was talking about his work on antirhinums in the wild, which he's been studying for many years. And he presented his work on what's called a hybrid zone. And that's what we try to recreate here. And we love the beautiful simplicity of it. It's very visually striking. And what it is, it's showing how genetic variant spreads across the geography of the hills in the Pyrenees directed by the way the bees pollinate different genotypes so they have a preference for the yellow flowers and the genotype that makes the yellow pigmentation or the magenta end of the spectrum and where those two subspecies of antirhinum meet in the wild they hybridize and therefore the new genetic diversity created by that creates all the intermediate colors of the flowers but they don't spread in the wild because the bees don't particularly like them. The bees have a preference for the magentas and the yellow. So the bees are acting as the agents of selection in the wild to create mainly the pinks and yellows. But I thought here in a flower show full of gardeners, gardeners are acting as agents of selection for what will grow. And probably not many people who come to a flower show ever think about that, the way that they're interacting with the genetics of the flowers they're looking at. And after all, almost everything that's growing in this tent is a mutant of some variety that's been selected by a flower breeder. So that's how we originally got to centering everything on the hybrid zone and using that, it seems to be a very tangible way to introduce people to the concepts of genetic variation. A lot of people who've come past the stand are very comfortable with the idea of hybrids because a lot of the plants they grow in their gardens are hybrids, but they've never really thought about it in the wild before as a natural phenomenon. And how much do we know about what's going on at a genetic level? Well, so I, I'm a human geneticist, not a plant geneticist, so I'm going to defer to my colleague, Greg Mellers, who's based at the National Institute for Agricultural Botany. And so he's a practicing plant geneticist, so he will be able to give you the scientific details of what's happening in this lovely hybrid zone behind us. Great. So I've just been talking to Wendy about the underlying sort of thought process behind what we have here. And we have these, she gave them a Latin name. What was the Latin name for these flowers? Uh, Antirhinum pseudomagus. Wow, that's a mouthful. Snapdragons for sure, <laughs> Snap you know, dragons, in yeah. common everyday language. And they're these beautiful flowers. They're a bit like hollyhocks or foxgloves in that they grow up in one stem and then there's lots of flowers that sort of circle around it. And they look a bit orchidy. They're quite bulbous and mouthy, if that's the right way to describe a flower. <laughs> I'm not sure we'd say mouthy necessarily. I actually don't know how you would describe them. They're kind of very pea-like or kind of bean-like in the structure of the flower, so it's very characteristic of a bean or a pea flower, so they're the goom flower that you might necessarily see out in your garden or out in your allotment. But the important thing about these is actually how pollinators interact with them. So one of the things that we're trying to show with this display here is trying to understand how pollinators are interested in colour and how they interact with different floral colours that exist within this wild and natural population that we've got on display here. 
So they start at magenta, purpley, pink at one end, and then they slowly sort of transition to yellow at the other end of the valley, the fake valley. And <laughs> yeah. in the middle, you've got a mixture, a right hodgepodge of white, some are pink, some are yellow, and yeah. that's all on the same branch, actually. So do we know what's going on to cause that change? So we're starting to have some ideas of exactly how this process works. So at either end of this spectrum, so at the magenta end and the yellow end, we have two very well-established and independent species. And so these two well-established species are consistently reoccurring in the same locations, in the same position. And what happens in between these two is hybridization. So generally what happens is that the pollen from one of these populations is spread along this transect, along this gradient between the two populations. And that's how we end up with this mix in the middle. So what's really interesting about this is that that central hybridization region doesn't necessarily persist from year to year because every time you get a different combination of these two independent populations. And we're starting to understand how this occurs by making crosses between each of these different populations. What we can do with these independent crosses is try and look at the characteristics of the flowers and use that to inform us as to what genes have changed that underlie that phenotype or that characteristic. And what's the outcome of that? Is it just colour that changes? So the entire genetics that underlie these different populations will be completely changed by this process of hybridisation. Any gardeners out there will be familiar with this idea of F1 hybrids. And it's kind of exactly the same process when we think about hybrids in the natural sense. What we're finding is that we've taken these independently segregated populations genetically that then come to meet. And so what happens in those central hybrid regions is you get what's called hybrid vigour. So this hybrid vigour is actually where you see an increase in the fitness. So this is why it's so attractive to gardeners to have these F1 hybrids, because they generally produce more flowers and therefore more fruit in that central hybridization region in the wild sense, but in your glass house or your greenhouse at home when you're trying to grow tomatoes and cucumbers for your kitchen. And do we know what's going on on a genetics level here to cause some of the changes in colour? And is it just colour that's changing? Is there more than meets the eye? What you effectively end up with is not just a mix of colour that exists between these populations, but you also start to change the cues to pollinator that exists within the flower. So remember, if you look at an antirrhinum or you look at any given flower, there isn't necessarily just a single colour, and flowers would be generally quite boring if you just had this single colour. Often what you'll find is that you have some sort of cue that almost looks like a landing strip going into an airport for the pollinator to come and land inside this flower. So if you actually look down and try and look in this flower, yeah. if you imagine I was a bee flying along coming into <laughs> this flower, what you'll find is that the bee is actually attracted to this central portion because these yellow landing strips actually act like a highlight to say, come inside or come here, this is where the nectar is. So and it's so about the contrast. The whole flower is white and then there are these sort of three yellow lines which direct it into where the pollen is. Precisely, yeah, exactly. And so these yellow lines that are directing the bee or the general pollinator inside are actually trying to say, this is where the nectar is or this is where the pollen is. And so what's interesting partially about antirrhinum is that you can see that this structure is actually quite closed and so the flower if you look at an antirrhinum it generally looks very compact and very closed together so what a bee has to actually do is to push these things apart so it needs some sort of cue some sort of indication of where to start to apply the pressure and where to start to actually enter into this antirrhinum and so what the bee will do is will press down to open this flower and then it can head inside to the flower, following these landing strip lines, and head all the way down to the nectar, which is what it wants at the end of the day, really. 
So that's quite a lot of work for the bee, isn't it, or the pollinator? It is. it's, a, it's an awful lot of work for the bee. And what's interesting about this mix and this central hybridization region is that because there's such a generic mix of these colours and these landing strips and all of the indications for a pollinator to actually come inside, that then becomes slightly problematic because when a pollinator is looking, it has what we call a search image in its mind. It has some sort of idea of the flower that it knows is currently producing nectar at that time of day. Because I think, as a lot of people now know, when bees return to the hive, they actually do what we call a waggle dance. And so the bees are telling the other bees in the hive where there is food and resources currently available. The problem becomes, when we have such a massive mix of these different colours and these different landing signals, it's very difficult for the bee to actually form a characteristic and kind of conceptual search image of what this mixture of crazy colours actually looks like. So in fact, what we find is that the pollination is significantly affected across this hybridization region. So is it like an evolutionary dead end in that the pattern is so confusing to these bees that they can't communicate it with their waggle dance to the other bees and therefore they don't get pollinated, so they die out with each season? Yeah, in some way. So it's actually a really interesting question because this kind of thing is where we're at now when it comes to genetics. We've reached the point with genetics now where we can actually start to understand, you know, how do species begin to form? And we can watch events like this where we're seeing a hybridization event occur to try and understand what is speciation. You have to remember that this idea of a species is slightly arbitrary in the sense that scientists at some point decided this is the kind of characteristics that we'd say was a species and that's kind of where we've gone from there. In some ways it's slightly arrogant, I guess, to say that we think this is a species. And we're actually reaching a point where we should really be able to start to answer that question. Specifically within this population, it's very difficult to tell because it needs there to be some characteristic of the central population, of these individuals that exist within the middle of that population, that allow them to be pollinated and continue to persist in that environment. And so even if these things actually do end up hybridizing within the hybridization zone itself, can you actually start to consider that a species? And so I was saying earlier about this kind of slight human arrogance of trying to put categories and labels onto species and trying to put everything into neat little boxes. And this population is really a great example of how we probably shouldn't really be doing that anymore. And we probably know enough about genetics now to know that this kind of hybridization in a natural sense is occurring all over the place. It's not just happening in the Pyrenees, it's probably happening in every given environment you can possibly think of. So it's a really good question about evolution and speciation because it starts to break down these ideas of what is a species, you know? And when does one species become another species? Exactly, like who makes that decision? I mean, biologists for years have been like, oh, this is one and this is another. And now that we can actually start to sequence things and we can look at the genomes of these populations, it really allows us to have a better understanding of genetically how distinct are these things. And so we can start to use the genetics that we're now able to achieve in order to be able to make these segregations. But still, I mean, when you actually start to go out in the wild and you look at these natural populations, meh, it's kind of all just a bit of a big mix of things, you know? And they've all just evolved from one another and will continue to evolve when we are gone. So it's nice and it's interesting to see biologists come along and try and put things into categories and put things into little drawers. And we can do that even more so now that we get genetics. But it should be that we reach a point now where we can make a kind of a frame shift like we can actually get away from all of this and start to say, you know, what is biodiversity and, and try and get away from counting species, I hope. No more botanical boxes. That's the message from Greg Mellers from NIAB, the National Institute of Agricultural Botany in Cambridge. Before Greer went off to lose herself in the hybridisation valley, she had one final question for Wendy Bickmore. 
I know this was your brainchild. Is it how you hoped it would be? Yes, I'm really pleased. It was so nerve-wracking putting it together because we thought, can we pull it off? Because the thing about Chelsea is people expect something quite high standard. So we were very reliant on the plants looking good and everything. I'm really pleased. I think it's been a great success and we even won a silver medal, which I'm so chuffed about. So Congratulations, that, yeah. Wendy. So that's going in the Genetic Society archive as a really unique <laughs> contribution. And what sort of reaction have you had from members of the public? We're on, what, day four now that you've been open? Yeah, I've lost track of the days. It's been a long week. It's been very, very interesting. Almost every day has been different. So on Monday, when the show opened, it was private viewing for, for example, the other exhibitors and the professional plant breeders. So we had really interesting conversations with the plant breeders in particular, who were very interested, for example, in variegation, because that's very important for tulips, some of the roses. And people would come up and actually say, where can I get my tulip sequenced? To which I don't have an answer, but I understand that perhaps the Earlham Institute is somewhere they can go to do that. So people have uh, some interest now in, in bringing a little bit of genetics into flower breeding. I think it's astonishing you know, from an, a working scientist's point of view that most plant breeding hasn't changed over you know, decades, hundreds of years. It's still done by crossing and keeping your fingers crossed and hoping that something interesting will come out of it. But I would like to think that in 10 years' time, if you came back here, we'd know the sequence of a lot of these flowers and these flower varieties. Especially now since the cost of sequencing a genome has come down so much. It plummets. In fact, one of the things we've got on the stand here is a miniion, a nanopore, and we're actually sequencing a new variety of antirhinome, which is a variegated form. We're trying to find out what the transposon is and where it's jumped into. So we're actually doing a little bit of science on stand as well. So we hope to have a scientific publication that comes out of this exhibit. A silver medal and a scientific paper. You can't hope for much more than that. That was Greer Jackson speaking with Professor Wendy Bickmore from the Human Genetics Unit in Edinburgh. The Genetic Society's Centenary Garden came to life thanks to the tireless efforts of a whole team, including Centenary Project Manager Christina Fonseca, Professors Wendy Bickmore and Martin Taylor from the MRC Human Genetics Unit in Edinburgh, Jonathan Pettit from Aberdeen University, who nobly spent the week dressed as Mendel, and colleagues from the John Innes Centre in Norwich and the National Institute for Agricultural Botany in Cambridge. We'll have some photos of the garden on the podcast page at geneticsunzip.com, so do go and take a look. This is Genetics Unzipped, the Genetics Society podcast. You can find us on Twitter at Genetics Unzip and online at geneticsunzipped.com. Please do take a moment to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts from, and it would be really great if you could rate and review the show. And please tell all your friends so more people can find out. In case you missed me banging on about it, 2019 is the Genetic Society's centenary year. Another part of the celebrations is a special edition of the Society's scientific journal, Heredity. It's a collection of opinion pieces by the Society's past presidents and the current president, Professor Lawrence Hurst from the University of Bath, looking back over the impact of a hundred years of genetics and forward into the future, both good and bad. In the latest episode of the Heredity podcast, Lawrence talks to James Bergen about 100 years of bias in genetics and evolution, how he fell in love with the field, his thoughts on science education, and his hopes for a playful future. I just think it's just the most amazing time to be a geneticist. It doesn't take a big brain to work out where we're going is into a, and we're already there, is into a domain of 
massive data. So I, I think our rate limiting step is going to be having good ideas about all of this data. But I, I would make an appeal also, I think, to what you might call an age of playful genetics, I guess. I think the joy of having really brilliant data like that at relatively cheap and available prices is that we should be entering an age in which people can be really, really playful in the sort of questions that they ask. Just go in and, and ask and have fun. And if it doesn't work out well, so be it. But I think there is a, a notion that you should just trust good intelligent scientists to be playful, to go out and come up with interesting things. You can hear the full interview in the latest Heredity podcast. Just search for Heredity in your favourite podcast app or follow the link from the page for this podcast at geneticsunzip.com. That's all for now. Next time, we'll be back with more stories from our series exploring 100 ideas in genetics. For more information about this podcast, including show notes, transcripts, links, references and everything else, head over to geneticsunzipped.com. You can find us on Twitter at geneticsunzip or email me at podcast at geneticsunzipped.com with any questions and feedback. Please, please do take a minute to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts from. And it would be really great if you could rate and review the show. And more importantly, please do spread the word so more people can discover and start listening. Genetics Unzipped is presented by me, Katani, and is produced by First Create the Media for the Genetic Society, one of the oldest learned societies in the world dedicated to supporting and promoting the research, teaching and application of genetics. You can find out more and apply to join at genetics.org.uk. Our theme music was composed by Dan Pollard, the logo was designed by James Mayle, and production was by Hannah Varrell. Thanks for listening, and until next time, goodbye.